Okay, well, welcome everybody. It's a pleasure to have you all join us this morning. Beautiful day. Uh, much looking forward to the discussion. My name is Simon Reed Henry, and I am based here at Prio, and I'm running the CoDuties project, uh, which is the uh, reason that we've invited, and I'm delighted to have you here, Professor Engin Eisen, to speak to us uh, about some of his ideas of citizenship which are themes that very much pick up on uh, the work we've been doing within the CoDuties project. Um, what I hope is that today's seminar is going to provide us with an opportunity for panelists, but also the audience, uh, to discuss the concept that Engin has been working on uh, of planetary citizenship and questions of duty uh, in relation to large-scale collective action problems, which is what we are actually looking at within the CoDuties project. The CoDuties project studies experiences of duty during the pandemic, comparing across a number of countries, France, the UK, Norway, to try to understand how duties are defined and redefined amidst new forms of citizenship and new global scale challenges. So we're interested in a sense in two things. One is it, how do we as a collective respond to large challenges? How do we define ourselves as a collective in that context? And what language of duty, of obligation, of responsibility is the appropriate one and the one that is used when people are forced in their lives as families, as societies, as communities to respond to some of these challenges, which as we have all experienced may crop up overnight. Engen, I think, is very well placed to speak to some of these themes. Engen is a former colleague of mine from Queen Mary, University of London, and now Professor Emeritus in International Politics uh, at the School of Politics and International Relations at Queen Mary. Engen, one of the last things we collaborated on was your Leverhulme-funded program on mobile people. The premise of that being that if urbanism was the way of life in the century when the city became the dominant habitat of humanity, then the 21st century is being increasingly marked by mobility as a way of life. Uh, mobile People program has now trained, I think, 20, something like that, 21, 21 PhD students, uh, mine being among them. Um, and it's a, it's a superb testament, I think, to the kind of work that you've been doing throughout your, throughout your career. 380 million people live in countries today that are other than those they were born in. in that's in 2020. Uh, in 2000, uh, it was 60% it was less. So these are real changes when we talk about global scale transformations. They sweep by, and often it's very hard to keep track of them, but the work that Engin and others have been doing, I think gives us a language of thought that we can use to try to make sense of some of these macro level changes and bring them down to the very local. Before you were at Queen Mary, Engin, you were Canada Research Chair at York University, and after that, a professor of politics at the Open University in the UK. His work more broadly focuses on subjectivity, performativity, uh, enactments and movements that emancipate peoples and on how cities, states and empires accumulate uh, subject peoples by processes of dispossession, colonization and assimilation. Engen has undertaken historical and sociological studies on imperial and colonial practices in various regions and has also written about 21st century data empires. Engen, your work consistently asks people, I think, uh, how do they make themselves subjects of politics through different acts and movements and struggles? And you explore the tension between emancipatory possibilities of citizenship 
and citizenship as an institution of domination, which again, I think is, speaks very closely to the sorts of themes that we're interested in this project. I will let you introduce your seminar uh, in, in a few moments. Um, and as I say, much looking forward to doing so. But before I hand over to you, Engin, I'd like to introduce our other two panelists with us here today. First, uh, David Yordhuslier, who is professor at the Department of Sociology and Social Geography at the University of Oslo. Uh, David is a political and economic geographer, focusing mostly on organized labor and the politics of work and social movements. In his writing, uh, David has employed theoretical concepts of scale, of labor, agency, industrial citizenship, I think, uh, alienation. His research examines how trade unions have adapted and renewed their political strategies during times of change, and more generally, how civil society organizations have mobilized. So again, I think bringing a very interesting set of perspectives to the, to the macro level discussion that Engin will be initiating, and looking forward to hearing your thoughts later on, David. And then we have uh, Cindy Horst, colleague here at PRIO, research professor uh, and co-director of the PRIO Center on Culture and Violent Conflict. Cindy is a sociocultural anthropologist, so truly interdisciplinary lineup today, studying how individuals drive societal change in often post-conflict settings. Her research explores civic engagement, challenging conventional ideas of active citizenship, and examining how people live in culturally and religiously diverse societies and how they engage in their surroundings as they do so. Cindy's also explored civic support for social justice for humanitarianism, uh, and development, including diaspora engagement with regions of origin and the transnational activities of refugees. I'll ask David to speak first in response to Engen's talk, and then Cindy, I'll come to you. And then there should be plenty of time after that for us to open up the floor, and we very much hope that you will uh, have some thoughts and questions to join us in the discussion, which I will then moderate. Um, Engen, you said you would speak for maybe 25 minutes, half an hour? Look forward to hearing your thoughts. It's a pleasure to have you here. Okay. Great. Thanks very much, Simon, um, for that introduction and also uh, laying out some of the issues that I want to start with so it, it really um, um, prepares the ground uh, for me. I just want to thank also uh, the uh, Prio Research Institute uh, for uh, inviting me, uh, starting with Simon as co-duties uh, program and Cindy. Um, I'd like to thank Audrey for all her efforts for organizing um, the event. It takes a lot of effort, I know. Uh, and David also uh, joining us for uh, the discussion. And thank you all for uh, coming. I look forward to this because I was thinking uh, this is um, drawing from a broader research project I'm doing called Planetary Movements. I will explain a bit later why the focus on uh, movements as part of uh, citizenship. Um, and I've been giving series of lectures. This is, I think, third or fourth in the series. And every time I learn more about what I'm doing by uh, responding to questions, and I get a better understanding of how the project itself is uh, unfolding. It's in its, in its earlier um, uh, stages. But the impetus for the project uh, comes from um, my discussions with Deepesh Chakrabarti uh, going uh, a, years, a few years ago uh, in the University of Chicago where um, a post-colonial studies historian um, getting interested in the question of the planetary 
and he said that he was thinking of uh, revisiting his project on cosmopolitanism, whether I'd be interested in contributing that project of rethinking cosmopolitan cosmopolitanism in the face of the planetary uh, challenges. Um, this was about five or six years ago. I said I would be very interested, but that project didn't take off uh, because Dipesh got really interested in the planetary question and he felt that he needed to write a, a paper first um, and then he has uh, uh, published the paper and, and then people had more questions and then he said I need to write a book first so he wrote the book and now we are doing the project it actually started so we just met a couple of months ago in Paris in a workshop thinking about uh, the, the differences between earth history, human history, planetary time, geological time, historical time, and so on. These are all really very challenging um, issues of our times. Um, and Dipesh convinced me uh, to, uh, to turn my attention to another aspect of um, ecological crisis or even the reshaping and resignification what we used to call ecological citizenship and I will explain um, in a few minutes why for example even ecological citizenship does not quite cut um, the challenge of the planetary and how the planetary opens up the necessity to think in different terms terms which we don't yet have so it is really a work in progress in facing up to the challenge um, the, the notion of planetary citizenship or planetary citizens as the active force um, particularly intrigued me uh, and this is I said to Dipesh that I would think about because we have established concepts that deal with duties that cross boundaries and, and this has been really in the last 30 years one of the most troubling but also the most exciting aspects of what citizens are doing with their citizenship and the challenges of cross-border activities generate, whether this is in forms that take um, seeking asylum, uh, migration, work-related migration, um, learning-related migration, or work-related migration. Um, as uh, Simon already uh, mentioned, a number of people who live other than who live in places other than their place of birth is is exponentially grown um, at the end of the 20th century and in the 21st century. So that has raised number of uh, questions about whose rights they are actually carrying when they are moving about. Uh, do rights move with people? Many people discover that they don't. Um, you may hold certain rights as citizens of uh, nations, but when you make moves across boundaries, those rights do not actually come with you. And many people, um, anthropological and ethnographic studies show, uh, discover this to their surprise, uh, because we have also competing concept of human rights. That is, rights are due to us by virtue of being human. That already indicates that, in fact, regardless of boundaries, rights that I hold by virtue of being human ought to move with me, but it doesn't. Each jurisdiction, each uh, territory, each nation, each state, each uh, 
configuration or regime of citizenship treat even human rights differently. So we have differentiated and variegated interpretations of um, what rights actually um, humans have. So on the, we have then several competing languages in the last 30 years or so especially to deal with this cross-border movement of rights. Let's not think in terms of people, but in terms of rights. Do rights move? And of course, corollary of that, to what extent duties move across borders? And in fact, there are a number of gaps open between rights and duties when uh, people move across borders. So they, they're more or less symmetrical relationship in a given regime. Let's say one is a Canadian citizen holding Canadian citizenship rights. Um, and then there are duties of Canadian citizenship, uh, voting rights, health rights, uh, taxation duties. These get actually uh, become asymmetrical. I'm speaking from uh, experience. Become asymmetrical. A moving subject or subject who moves uh, finds out that the duties and rights, their relationships have changed. So after one year, for example, staying outside Canada, I lost my political rights. Um, and then two years, I lost my, uh, sorry, one year, I lost my uh, health rights. So my health citizenship suspended, conditional on returning back to Canada, living there for one year, and reclaiming it. And after uh, three years or so, I lost my political rights. So I could not actually uh, vote in Canadian elections. And then there was a transition moment where, for example, by virtue of Commonwealth, I could vote without being a British citizen in British elections, but I could not vote in Canadian elections. So there is this gap between um, duties and responsibilities and, and rights uh, become asymmetrical gap uh, when moves. And of course, from the literature, we know thousands of examples of these asymmetrical um, rights. In the face of these challenges, number of terminologies, number of conceptual um, frameworks have been put forward to, on the one hand, make sense of these uh, gaps, but on the other hand, allow people the grounds for which they can struggle for the rights that they lose and struggle for the rights that they don't have and redefine the duties that they have and resignify the duties that they don't have. We have had languages. These languages, particularly three I'm going to, um, maybe four, of course, human rights regime and language. That's very common amongst uh, especially activists, uh, solidarity activists, as well as migrant activists. That's the one that provided most grounded and uh, also institutionally supported um, way in which to put forward um, rights that migrants should have, refugees should have, workers should have, seasonal workers should have, and so on. And their duties, uh, duties of the states that are receiving them, as well as their duties when they are in those states. So human rights have been a, a, a very strong foundation for this, but as you all know, it has also come under stress because the interpretation of 
what human rights uh, are and how they need to be performed also vary from state to state uh, and therefore from border to border. So there is no uniformity, cohesion or coherence in terms of um, practical performance of human rights. We may have some coherent body of work on human rights and we could argue passionately for them, but actual performance is different. Um, the other couple of um, concepts have been, of course, cosmopolitan citizenship, which uh, is itself as old as the idea of citizenship. It goes back to ancient Greece and Stoics, their notion of the relationship between their duties to cities when they're away from their own cities, as well as the cities in which they happen to be located. Um, they called the former... Uh, those citizens of um, cities, polities, uh, and and the um, those who moved around via various multilateral and bilateral arrangements among cities, cosmopolities, and then there's a very strong uh, literature recovering those histories of cosmopolitan rights of citizenship, what people are due in terms of their duties and responsibilities when they are not in the city in which they hold citizenship. So we have a, a very rich history that traces back in at least 2,500 years. Um, and then there's more recent languages of transnational citizenship and international citizenship, similarly dealing with the issues that I'm talking about, symmetrical and asymmetrical gaps between duties and responsibilities when uh, people move. And in all of this, of course, uh, we've been discussing these matters in the last 30 years, um, trying to both practically find solutions for people who get caught in um, precarious situations by virtue of losing rights without knowing that they lost those rights and helping them find out the rights that they actually have uh, but they don't know about as well as the duties, not only duties that they have to the, um, the, the place that they moved into but also places that they left but also the duties of the authorities that host them. So for all this, international citizenship scholars look at international law and they discuss, for example, how various bundle of rights can be put together to uh, push forward the rights of international citizens that they don't need to derive from a particular uh, authority. They can, be, uh, they can be assembled, as it were, from various um, uh, categories. A very well-known example of this was Yasemin Soysal's uh, 1990s book on, um, on post-national citizenship. For example, she argued that um, citizenship is already post-national because in practical grounds, people are able to claim many rights and fulfill duties without necessarily being citizens legally. Uh, so there is an emerging legal precedent, uh, she argued, that accepts uh, citizens moving with rights. But we just have to anthropologically and ethnographically, sociologically investigate in situ how they are doing these. So there's no generic uh, formula that can explain this. So the post-national citizenship has been a strong contribution along those lines. So when I 
um, was challenged to think about the planetary, the first temptation, in fact, the very first talk I gave was quite expertary. First temptation is to think planetary citizenship along these lines. Um, it produces new set of responsibilities. We have also examples. Um, high school students are uh, staging strikes in the name of the planet and, and against climate change or against, um, against uh, a lack of activity for uh, climate. Uh, we have scientists forming together um, groups called uh, rebellions, rebellious science or scientific rebellion. They're occupying stages and headquarters and boardrooms of oil companies. And when people ask, what are you doing? You're a scientist. You stay in your lab and study your climate science. And then they say, we don't have time, which is a, a strange um, uh, confluence of, of, of uh, developments when you see scientists actually thinking that they don't have time in their thinking in planetary terms that we are facing urgency. And we have um, uh, activists who they now call climate justice or climate activists. Uh, they're gluing themselves to roads, they're uh, blocking, and then there's a very lively um, uh, um, discussion going on amongst activists, the uh, force and the role of violence in activism, to what extent their duty is to remain within the limits of the law, whether they should ought to feel responsible, dutiful to the planet, to break the law of the nation. And some activists say that there is no, uh, there is no contradiction here. We have to break the law to save the planet. Is is the slogan? So these are very strong um, uh, claims. Uh, very strong claims that, for example, I cannot possibly find corollary elements in cosmopolitan citizenship. In my 30, 35 years of studying citizenship, I don't remember people hitting streets and gluing themselves to buildings and occupying for cosmopolitan citizenship. It is a, an important concept to do things with, but it does not necessarily force people to the street in that sense. Similarly, transnational citizenship, transnational citizens are said to be active, protesting, and so on. Uh, interpretation of, for example, solidarity with migrants is considered a form of transnational citizenship. But it does not have the same urgency and intersectionality all across borders. And the Earth being the habitat of all of us, there is this ontological condition that it puts on us to think about our own habitat. Our own habitat climate activists say, don't have borders. So th this is even a step beyond saying uh, activists, transnational um, activists saying, we are um, doing politics of no one is illegal. We are a politics of no borders. Climate activists says, uh, good luck. There are already no borders. Look at the rivers, look at the mountains, look at the earthquakes, look at the movement of uh, weather system, the, the functioning of the ecosystem. You have living beings and species 
that you're inhabiting the same place with that don't have borders and we are merely a visitor in terms of the geological time. They have been around for billions of years. That changes the ontological way in which the, the very condition of being on planet and inhabiting it, um, the, the perspective. And there is a certain performative force uh, to that claim when you think about um, in the context of what climate science is saying and the IPCC and all sorts of uh, authorities and organizations are um, organizing how to deal with the climate crisis. So in, in that context, when, the when there is this ontological difference, one cannot just simply approach planetary citizenship as yet another scale. So that we had city scale, we had national scale, we had international scale, we have planetary scale. In my view, um, there is a radical rupture between these earlier scales and the planetary scales. There's a radical rupture to capture and understand. We are at that moment um, to understand that what that radical rupture will mean in constituting ourselves as subjects of uh, planetary politics. Uh, how do we how do we organize ourselves? The injunctions, the interpolations, the call of the planetary are of a different nature. How do we deal with this? Now, there is the methodological and epistemological problem here. I'm not going to go into details, but I felt that I had to do that work. I, once I have come to a point where I say there is an radical rupture between these scales, it's not a scalar change, then my responsibility to myself was to step back, do some methodological, philosophical, and theoretical work before I jump into the concept of planetary citizens. So I wanted to bracket that for now. So two things um, I have formulated so far. Um, so, if planetary is not a scale, what is it? It's a long story, but I have come to conclude, or I have come to a point where I'm ready to suggest, is that planetary is a socially instituted imaginary. So, I ended up doing a bit of historical work on the concept of imaginary, um, that it's an imaginary that interpolates us, the imaginary that calls on us, but it is socially instituted, imaginary not as your imaginary friend. Maybe it is. Um, I need to think about that again. Um, it's not in the sense of illusion. It's not in the sense of fiction, but imaginary in the sense that it actually mobilizes people materially. It is an injunction to act. It is that kind of imaginary, and it is socially instituted. Why I use the term socially instituted, it has a, a, a theoretical history, theoretical background to this. I won't go into too much detail, but why I particularly call the socially instituted imaginary is that various human and non-human practices create this imaginary. 
um, through these practices that it becomes insist. So the, the examples I give, uh, I gave earlier, um, scientists calling themselves rebellion uh, scientists and doing things that are not expected of scientists is social institution of imaginary. This uh, imaginary called upon them to act in a different way, different way of being a scientist. And from that we learn that, well, are there different ways of being a student? Are there different ways of being a worker? Are there different ways of being a commuter? Are there different ways of being a consumer? And to all these questions, we're giving answers, yes, yes, and yes, and yes. So the emergence of vegetarianism, not just a personal lifestyle choice, but actually a climate activism. The emergence of um, clothing, uh, what we wear, what we consume, as um, not an act of cosmopolitan citizenship, but as act of planetary citizenship. That is, that we are responding to, this is not a lifestyle issue. So the discussions around um, whether we eat meat, um, how do we actually um, use land for agriculture, how do we produce food, uh, have become not just issues of just in silos like economy, culture, lifestyle, but the planetary condition. Um, so th this imaginary is being built. Now, the other advantage of imaginary is one thing I want to say. There, there is not a singular way of interpolating people into this imaginary, and it's not homogeneous, coherent, and consistent one. So imaginary allows me actually also remain outside of it as somewhat of an observer. Yes, I'm an active person and citizen in all of this, but also I'm using the privilege and, and prerogative of science to remain outside as well. Well, I need to ask critical questions about this imaginary and how it is instituted as well. So I cannot just simply accept every call. I cannot simply respond to every duty that I'm put upon. I need to remain critical about these calls and the kind of imaginary that we are building. Ah, now that makes me citizen, a critical orientation toward what I'm called upon to do, not blindly follow or simply um, affectionately follow and do what I'm suggested to do. That's one fundamental concept of citizenship that has to remain with planetary citizenship. So this is one aspect of uh, the theoretical move. The second aspect, and this will uh, explain also my broader uh, project, the social institution of imaginaries. I talk about their social institution, but how? How does one study? How does one study institution of an imaginary? We don't have many studies um, on this and established methodological um, um, trajectory. This is where drawing on from social movement studies proved very useful for me. I've been always involved in social movement studies and always uh, appreciated their contribution that they made to citizenship, ranging from um, civil rights movement, um, 
um, um, environmental movement, ecological movement, uh, queer movement, gay and lesbian rights, trans movement, movement of migrants, and, and so on. So there is a reading of all those forms of citizenship that I recounted in social movement studies going all the way back to 1940s and 1950s. And social movement studies themselves also have been attuned to changes in the last 30 years of the opening up of boundaries. It is in social movement studies the concepts of um, transnationalism, um, internationalism, cosmopolitanism have been also studied and, and discussed. And with all their um, methodological development and so on, there's much to inherit from that to reflect on um, planetary uh, citizenship, but what I call planetary movements. And yet I ran into the same problem with making the jump from cosmopolitan citizens, international citizens, transnational citizens to planetary citizens to cosmopolitan movements, transnational movements to planetary movements. They're fundamentally different. So movement, social movement studies are really important founding element to, to think about what's happening, especially a critical approach on how the social, uh, how the imaginary is socially instituted and remain vigilant about various um, dangerous tendencies in it. I'll, I'll just mention one, for example, one dangerous tendency in uh, planetary movements uh, has been to give too much credit to science, whereas we have articulated over the last 30 years that science has to be accepted critically. Uh, it has to be, scientists am amongst ourselves will not talk with each other without criticism. Uh, that critique is a fundamental element of science. We, we, we make propositions, but there has been a tendency of taking science almost uh, irreversibly and irretrievably and non-negotiably true and right on some of its predictions and so on. And that's dangerous. So when you see, for example, an admirable young activist, Greta, uh, Greta Thunberg, um, doing her activism and wearing the badge of even being uh, arrested as part of her activism, All's good, admiration is there, inspiration is there. But to hear her say, follow the signs, then, whoa, which one? Uh, there isn't a single science. There are various controversies within science itself. We need to be cognizant of that. It, it changes. So then we have to think critically about planetary movements and the social institution of this imaginary. So along those lines, um, I have, should I stop? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> I was trying to wiggle out. <laughs> okay, um, we'll do. So with these methodological and theoretical um, sort of groundwork, I've come to articulate how do I give some sense of thousands of pieces of evidence coming from thousands and um, hundreds of thousands of corners of the world to some semblance of order and make sense of 
how these movements, planetary movements, are instituting the social imaginary of the planetary. What are they calling? So I then said, with the social movements studies help, this happens in three significant ways. These are very broad categories, but still much less um, unwieldy than millions of pieces of evidence that one can read daily. This is also the other thing about working with planetary movements. We are not working in the archives, or we are working in the archives that is the Earth itself. Worse than not being in archives. It is, we are living it. It's, it's as it is made. There's that complication with it. But three ways in which one can think about movements are considered. One, the establishment of a collective will and desire. That is a, sing a singularly most important aspect of formation of a movement. Any movement cannot address its subjects, as it were, and interpolate them with some um, will, with some desire to do something, orient themselves towards something other than themselves, their own immediate um, selves, then um, that would not become a movement. Second one, no movement would become a mov movement without rearranging our relationship to knowledge. How do we know what we know and how do we decide what to know? What forms of knowledge that we produce? And I will come back to my comments on science on this in planetary movements. And the third one is also the constitutive element of movements. Yes, it organizes affect and desire and will of collectivities. Yes, it reforms knowledges, but also it gives us people specific ways to conduct ourselves that are grounded in our everyday experience, that we can actually conduct our lives as being part of a movement. If planetary movement does not give clear indications of what to do about meat, it's very difficult to actually act, to do something. But then if it does, and if it gives you the information, the knowledge that presents, for example, um, it's remarkable that one discovers, uh, I hope I get my numbers, um, it's, it's in Europe, um, average meat consumption is about 84 kilograms per person per year. If you do quick calculation, that's enormous amount of meat. And this is almost doubled in North America and Australia. And then there are the studies showing the impact of that on agricultural land, on production and distribution of food, uh, transportation systems, a whole ecosystem that it mobilizes. Um, planetary movements, with respect to this, it then converts this into a particular injunction of what not to do, what to do, and how to orient oneself. And therefore, we come up with very complex languages that are languages of the everyday. You, you, become, to, um, you become familiar with uh, not only the word, but you become familiar with 
being vegetarian, vegan, the differences, different options, and the, the, the vocabulary is vast. That means there are ways of conducting ourselves that, that's produced with this imaginary, and it's giving us w um, ways to act, and we know how and when to act when we uh, follow them. So these three, I have developed a number of examples. And what I've done is I focus myself on this question. If there's an ontological difference between the cosmopolitan, transnational, international, and so on, movements and citizenships, and planetary as, as a challenge, and if I have these three dimensions, three axes of uh, working through, what examples in each I can discover that makes planetary movements planetary, but not necessarily cosmopolitan, international, transnational, although not against them? That's another discussion we can have. So th that's the question that I distilled down to some feasible project. What, what are the aspects in these three dimensions? Um, so in terms of uh, willing, I'll, I'll give you one example from each. In terms of willing and organizing our desire, our will, um, I think the invention of Anthropocene has been absolutely um, crucial. Because what it does say, I'm sure you're aware of controversies about the word Anthropocene, whether it's really a geological period. Well, it's not accepted geological period. The, uh, the pre period that technically we are in, still Holocene, 11,000 years. It's a relationship to agriculture and how we use the land and our impact on the land. That's Holocene. Now, the idea is that we are in Anthropocene. As human species, we have now made more impact on the Earth than any other species and all the collections thereof historically, billions of years, in a very short period of time. So we have become an agent of radical change of the Earth itself, and that change is not positive. It is absolutely negative in the sense that we are threatening the sustainability of, of the Earth itself. That, I think, has been an amazing um, invention, uh, an imaginary invention. Of course, I would be skewered by many people if I call this imaginary invention, but sociologically, I would insist on that. Um, there are scientists who think that this is uh, foolproof, discovery that we have now reached Anthropocene. And then there's the discussion, should we call it Anthropocene? Where do we cut the boundaries? Is it 200 years? Is it industrial revolution? Shouldn't be with the uh, invention of agriculture? Shouldn't it be particularly about capitalism and so on? The, the debate goes on, fossil fuels and so on. But in all of those debates, of course, one thing that is not questioned, that we are discussing our impact on the Earth as its most powerful agent. And now we are in an unenviable predicament to have been the agent who caused this, and yet at the same time the agent that who has to do something about it. We, we are not in a position to ask other species to do something about it. We are not in a position to ask 
um, mountains and rivers to change their behavior to do something about it. And then there's the issues of geoengineering, for example. There are people who argue that we can fix this. Applying the worst medicine as a remedy, science and engineering in its unthinking mode. We can fix this. We can just do this, couple of degrees here, couple of degrees there, move the clouds, we'll be done. That kind of uh, promise. Of course, it is extremely dangerous to um, slip into that kind of scientism. So this is uh, in terms of Anthropocene discussion. Now, in terms of knowledge, organization of knowledge, what I find in planetary movements, that there is a very strong, um, how shall I say, intersectionalism or cross-sectionalism and truth as dialogue. So in planetary movements, when they are making their arguments and so on, there's a very strong drawing on from indigenous knowledges, uh, historical knowledges, spiritual knowledges from religion. Religions themselves are actually making accommodations and transformations in Buddhism and Christianity and Islam, uh, d demonstrating uh, changes with respect to the climate crisis. So there is a particular understanding in pl um, planetary movements that no one single form of knowledge, Global South, Global North, science, religion, um, can actually be authoritative. We have to sort out our relationship to ourselves as peoples, our relationship to other species, and our relationship to the Earth itself in dialogue with different forms of knowledge that have, you have produced in the last 10,000 years and more. So indigenous spirituality, for example, in terms of listening to wind, listening to rivers, listening to the earth itself, is not so taken lightly, that there are significant epistemologies of the earth uh, movement. And a generation ago, ago this would have been considered, for example, taking a trip with some uh, substances. Today, it is seriously considered this is an epistemology. It's not just epistemologies of the South, epistemologies of the Earth. So in terms of knowledge, this dia dialogical conception of knowledge and science in planetary movements, I think is making a strong uh, impact on how we think. And it's making an impact in, in, in social sciences and humanities that I'm more familiar with. But also, bioscientists, climate scientists are increasingly in dialogue with sciences that they have not been familiar with. And they are open dialogue with indigenous peoples and, and others. And of course, in terms of our relationship with animals and other species are going through significant change. Now we are talking about, when I say planetary citizenship, by the way, it's not only humans, non-humans. We have to understand that with planetary citizenship, we are presented with the issue of giving agency to a mountain and a river and accept it as a citizen. How are we going to deal with the duties of a river, Simon? That is the question that planetary movements are asking. How are we, how are we establish that relationship with um, things that for centuries, at least as Western humans, have taken granted as a background, that it just happens in the background, mountains, rivers, and so on, 
nice to look at, easy to dominate when you need to, but it remains the background of what we called for uh, 5,000 years civilization. That civilizational discourse is dismantled in planetary movements. You cannot put that forward as um, bearing the flag of humanity. And finally, and I, will, I think it's a good time to um, wrap up, in terms of acting, I think I've given examples. Planetary activism and planetary movements are also um, very strong on um, distilling all these and translating them into actual repertoires of action. And it's, it is one of its stronger, uh, if not strongest, element. Um, I think vegetarianism and veganism are examples I gave, but there are numerous other examples, also crisscrossing between um, anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-misogynist, anti... Uh, animal discourses, the, the resistances to them are coming to combine with planetary movements. So it's bringing what we used to know as social movements into a new relationship with, with the Earth in a new way. Um, so it's resignifying what these movements are and what are the injunctions, what, what are they calling um, people to do. Um, and then, uh, in terms of citizenship, one of the most radical contributions that the planetary movements do, I think, is um, there's been a long discussion in citizenship literature and citizenship theory. Who authorizes citizenship duties and rights? What are the sources of authority? For the longest time, at least um, 2,500 years, uh, with the Greek uh, cities, the, uh, the answer to that question has been polity. However you define a political organization, human constructed political organization defines the framework of duties and, and, and rights. However different um, um, frames you propose, you open it up from the city to other scales, a construction of polity, which remains also the case with human rights. That there is a polity, not the polity as we know it, state, uh, city, nation, but UN and its org international organizations become the backbone of organizing citizenship rights and duties. The planet shifts that too. In performative theory, there is this notion that to act means to act without authority. That means being a, um, recognizing the will of collectivities to be able to organize themselves without necessarily being authorized by a polity. And yet that remained most of the time as a horizon of expectation rather than reality. The planetary condition has shifted that. Now people are asking, um, acting with the authority of the planet. We have already seen examples of people doing unexpected things, disrupting and interrupting existing order of things by appealing to the Earth, 
in our common habitat. We must do this. I don't have a choice, but I must act under this authority. And it is bigger than nation, bigger than any international organization. It is not transcendental, but it is the common habitat. That changes for the first time the ability for people to act in its name as, as planetary citizenship. Thank you. I will stop there. Thank you, Engin. <coughs> Lots to think about there, including on rivers. David, I'm going to hand over to, to you now. Um, you work as a, as a geographer, as a political economist. You've focused on labor. Engin's given us a huge amount of uh, <coughs> things to grab onto, to think about across these different scales. Um, how, yeah, I mean, it, it would be really interesting to hear how you, how you think through some of those dilemmas in your, in your own work, particularly these ruptures across scale that, that Engen is talking about and these, these distinctions between duties, uh, the tension between them, whether they travel with people uh, when they move across boundaries. Um, really look forward to hearing your, your thoughts. Well, thank you, Simon, and thank you, Engen, for a, a very rich uh, intervention that made me think as you uh, spoke and, um, and maybe having to readjust a little bit what I'm going to say now because um, because you bring up so many new things and, and complex ways of combining them but I, maybe I just should start uh, positioning myself a little bit because it, it is not given that we are uh, maybe I need to explain why I'm being elevated uh, like this to have uh, you know an opinion about uh, what Engen has said. I don't uh, consider myself a citizenship scholar. Uh, rather, I'm a labor geographer, as you said, um, and I have used citizenship as a concept to make sense of some of the research I've done. And I've had uh, the pleasure of engaging with Engen's work in the past. Um, so. For me right now, it's a bit of a kind of what I learned from you back then and what I learned from you now and trying to connect those two um, learning experiences. So, uh, so I, I want to take you into a project that I was engaged in uh, for a while, which was very specific uh, and where the notion of citizenship, the way you explained it, uh, made a lot of sense to us. And this was a... Uh, a project that looked at citizenship struggles in Indonesia. And we were a large group of researchers from Indonesia and from Scandinavia trying to make sense of very different subjects. So uh, palm oil <coughs> producers, uh, youth organizations, uh, Islamic terrorists, um, and in my case, domestic workers. And that goes back to my interest in you know engaging from the worker positionality. Uh, and we, uh, so we had very different interests, but what we had in common is that we found it useful to read about citizenship as something that was practiced and not static, something that was contested, something that was a process, and something that required um, an active citizen. And, uh, and that also, maybe I don't have time to go into this, but it, it, it inspired me to go back into T.H. Marshall's work and look at uh, this notion of industrial citizenship, which I think has a very interesting way to explain why 
um, struggling through work. In other words, not uh, struggling mainly in the political realm, but struggling in the market as um, sellers of labor power. How that can um, initiate a particular kind of politics and a kind of political leverage in, in certain uh, areas of um, well, so social development, and that happened in T.H. Marshall's case in, back in industrial Britain. But it was useful for me to make sense of why this group of domestic workers in Indonesia uh, were trying to fight for their rights in a way that did not seem effectual. Like, it didn't reach the goals that they set themselves. Uh, and there are many, many reasons that we found why this politics uh, were uh, having such a hard time, but one of the main reasons was, of course, that this group was uh, basically five million people doing domestic work in Indonesia, and then you have another maybe five million migrating to do domestic work in other people's homes outside those borders. Uh, but we were focusing on this group of domestic migrants, uh, and they weren't organized to, much, uh, to a large extent, so we were looking at small groups of people 100 people, maybe a 1,000, forming unions in particular localities, but uh, really struggling to set the political agenda. Uh, and and so, so we saw in that uh, lack of political effectiveness, uh, a, a lack of a, um, a mobilized active subject. And what I wanted to, and, and the reason why I'm mentioning this now is not just because this is my own way into this notion of citizenship, but it, I also think that there are some lessons to learn on when we now try to develop this notion of planetar planetary citizenship, both because there are similarities, but also because if this notion of planetary citizenship is to mean something uh, in a real sense, it also needs to appeal to and resonate with that kind of struggles, you know, those kinds of struggles that are very grounded. Um, and that has a particular subject that where it starts. And I also need to mention that uh, the leader of this uh, national network, Lita Angraini, is coming to Norway next week to receive the Arthur Swenson uh, Award, which is a trade union rights award, uh, on, on behalf of Elizabeth Tang, who is the president of the International Domestic Workers Federation. And uh, she's in, a, I think, in some kind of house arrest in Hong Kong, so Lita will accept the award uh, on her behalf. Anyway, so we'll, we'll see whether, the, whether this is useful, Engen, but uh, I'm just going to try to sketch up some uh, relations between what I learned in this case and the notion of planetary citizenship. So one is that in both cases, uh, we are investigating, as you say, an imaginary, uh, which means that we need to, or somebody needs to um, state that they are something, and somebody has to believe in this. And in many cases, the rest of the world seems to watch in disbelief. So uh, the notion of planetary citizenship, I'm not sure what kind of traction it has uh, in a wider sense, but somebody has to believe it in, in order for this to be effective politics. This was the same case for the, for the domestic workers in Indonesia. They had to tell first themselves, and then the others around them, that we are workers. They had to construct a collective identity that was not given in any sense because uh, social identity in Indonesia 
basically told them that they were helpers, part of the family, something that was not uh, deserving of the status as a worker and then also not deserving the status of worker rights uh, and all the stuff that comes with it. Uh, so that is the first struggle that, uh, that this form of um, imaginary has to deal with, telling themselves that they are something and making others believe that they, they are. And so my question back to you, I suppose, is what does that mean uh, for this construction of this imaginary in, in the case of planetary citizenship? Um, the other, and I think also this is very important, but probably also very difficult is that if we want to build effective politics around this imaginary, we cannot simply focus on the movement, its imaginaries, its, its mobilizing identities. We also have to look at all the other struggles that might act upon this project. And, and you touch up on this in the text that you circulated. I think you call them counterplanetary imaginaries. And they, are, they can be incredibly powerful. Um, so unless we understand what kind of forces that we work alongside, sometimes against, not necessarily, but you know, that, that they're, they're also active, they're also transformative. It is hard to really understand the potential, I think, of this imaginary. So I, I'm just gonna read one sentence from, your, from that uh, text, Engen, where you say, we must, confine, we must confine the concept planetary movements to those that claim, demand, articulate, and resist, resist domination. And this was very much the same with the domestic workers in Indonesia. This was my experience, that they not only had to fight against this notion of a suppressive, dominating social identity, you are simply helpers, you know? But they also had to fight alongside supposedly allies like the trade union movement we are workers, then we should par be part of the same movement. Uh, but they, there were some very interesting contradictions in this alliance, not least because in, in this society, many working class families employ their own domestic workers. So they, this was a very ambiguous class identity. So to make this large uh, trade union movement support their demands, they would also implicitly have to accept that this, the price of this service became more expensive, right? So there were int uh, conflicts of interest. Um, and again, this, my question is, what's the, what does this mean for planetary citizenship? That these other forces, these other imaginaries might, uh, we, we might have to deal with them in ways that create alliances, but there, there might be real conflicts of interest, real or imagined conflicts of interest and how does the project, if, if we can call it that, of planetary citizenship deal with those conflicts, these articulations. My third point, if, I'm, if I had time, yeah, is that you, you stress this uh, several times and I, I think that's an important point that the planetary is an imaginary, not an epoch and not a scale necessarily but it still requires a politics of scale. I think that the imaginary of the planetary needs a politics of scale that establishes the imaginary as, as practiced politics. Um, and that I think is very difficult. Uh, sometimes in labor studies, we call this the upscaling imperative. 
that you know that uh, different working worker struggles in different countries and different labor markets and now also with climate change in different nationally determined contributions to the Paris Agreement have to kind of compete and, co uh, and uh, collaborate. But then what happens when you take that struggle up to a different uh, scale of politics, for instance, a global scale? Uh, and we saw this with the domestic workers, that their strength was in very localized, well-established unions in small, in certain cities, not others in Indonesia. But they also had this um, global politics and international domestic workers federation and ILO convention on domestic worker rights um, supporting networks of all kinds and also now a kind of lobby organization at the national scale but something got lost in translation when those localized struggles with their active subjects were articulated at, at a new scale and I'm wondering whether this also might be the case for this project of planetary citizenship. That w when you list all these different struggles, uh, class-based struggles, identity struggles of different kinds, uh, struggles for land, um, when they try to establish something at a diff different scale, are, they, are their strength, their mobilizing power automatically translated into to this new um, scalar politics or is something lost in the way um, so that's an open question but i think it's an important one uh, not least because a lot of the class-based struggles that i'm looking at uh, and i'm mentioning now the domestic workers in indonesia but i could just as well talk about oil workers in norway which i happen to have spent a lot of time on the last five years um, what parts of these movements travel to these meetings in Geneva or in other places where we try to talk about these things uh, lifted out of their national confines? Uh, what kind of the rank and file, what kind of the kind of uh, grassroots legitimacy is, is brought with them to these meeting places? And then a, f a final point, which, is, which was not planned, which, but which I thought about when you talked about duties traveling across borders. Uh, a lot of these struggles are not just appealing to a duty of the self to act. They're also uh, rallying around a, a sense of duty on part of others. So the climate movement is not just uh, a, 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 trying to give space to somebody's sense of guilt feelings. It, it tries to make oil companies uh, take responsibility. It tries to make consumers take responsibility, politicians. So the sense of duty is not just this mobilizing factor in establishing a particular form of citizenship. It is a uh, tactic and a, an aim and, an, and a goal on part of others. But duty, when, duty kind of, is confined by national borders in more ways than just that the subject is crossing the border. It is also bound up in senses of responsibility that has to do with what we take responsibility for and what we actively refrain from taking responsibility for, for instance, in the climate struggle. So we are talking to oil workers about this. What kind of responsibility do you have at the point of production of a product uh, whose main emissions are at the point of consumption, you know, the, as, as uh, fossil fuels. Um, 
is it reasonable in these, all these global uh, value chains to, to expect from a subject to take responsibility for more than what is experienced at the site of work in the realm of consumption? Do we take these kind of stretched uh, responsibilities, which I also think relates to the sense of duty, right? So how do we spatially confine our, our sense of duty, which might be useful in this discussion? Perfect. Thank you, David. Uh, lots of interesting things there. I mean, you're, you're into a couple of things towards the end uh, around, well, first of all, the politics of duty, which I think is sort of what you're getting at there. And I just want to point out there is a, there's a policy brief over at the back of the room for anyone interested on the politics of duties, which picks up a little bit of what you're saying, which is that often these aren't simply things that people have to enact or resist, but actually things that are used as there can be strategy in the way in which duties are, are, are managed and, and adopted. Uh, and also on the language, which I think brings us over to you, Cindy, really nicely, and, and different forms of overlapping conceptualization of what duty could be, responsibility, obligation, how these play out in relation to political scales or not, uh, which I think then in turn, Ingen, speaks back to, to, to what you're talking about, which is trying to define this new cross-scalar uh, component of the planetary that is somehow separate to internationalism, to transnationalism, uh, to globalism. So, Cindy, uh, we'd love to, hear, love to hear your thoughts on this too. Uh, I'll also start with um, positioning myself, both as an anthropologist, but also someone who mainly uh, works empirically on the level of the individual uh, and how the individual relates to the collective. So I've been very interested in uh, acts of resistance, ordinary resistance, uh, in times when that resistance was, or the space for the resistance was really uh, narrow. Uh, so, for example, uh, during war, during, uh, in, in authoritarian oppressive regimes. Um, and, uh, of course, also speaking from the Active Citizenship Project, where you have the flyer, and I saw Nujdit, one of the key uh, researchers there, uh, walking around with her baby. Uh, one of the key tasks I see in interventions, whether it's academic or Otherwise, it's really to uh, try to make people to think in some different ways, in a way, if that's possible. I, to me, that's also a real key uh, opportunity for anthropologists. I'm looking at, uh, at you, Tuna. Tuna. Um, so bringing in different perspectives in an attempt to broaden what and how we are able to think, basically. Uh, so I'm... I'm spending quite a lot of time consciously thinking about how do you actually do that uh, when the ways of thinking are quite set by particular mainstream understandings uh, of the, the world. So I'm, I'm interested in what a different conceptualization allows one to think and how it requires us to unlearn and relearn. Um, and I think that's exactly what I really appreciate here because <laughs> that's what you're doing. Um, one of the questions I would like then also to uh, to explore is to, or for us to explore, is what this socially instituted imaginary of planetary citizenship as a con concept allows us to think that we couldn't think before uh, and what it requires us to relearn. So then I'm really thinking about us as academics, but also as active or planetary citizens, if you like. Um, my main goal of this morning then is both to go into the conversation with you, but also to try to, um, I mean, this is really about honoring this uh, interesting co-learning that you have and shared ID development 
uh, and hopefully, I mean, time is running out, but I was hoping also for the audience to be able to uh, to kind of uh, contribute uh, to that. Uh, I want to start with uh, highlighting some reflections I had based on your willing uh, knowing and acting, and then a couple of things that I felt were missing or like other points that I feel could be added. So. On willing, you talk in your paper and also in an earlier presentation, you talk a lot about this uh, domination as a key organizing system. And I think to me that's really uh, interesting, uh, but also it needs to acknowledge that there are um, other ways in which people have lived their lives with this realization already. And I'm thinking specifically on indi uh, indigenous um, ways of, uh, of living with this realization already for <laughs> very, very long that um, we are all interdependent and we are all connected. So, so um, this distinction between the human and the non-human, I mean, th that already, so I feel that, okay, well, that's, that's actually already there and you mention it, but how can we draw more on that? Uh, furthermore, also, uh, our stories about the world as academics will strengthen those stories. Uh, so it, it kind of makes some things visible and other things invisible. Uh, so I'm very interested also in these counter stories and actually bringing them up so that we don't just talk about the world as a story of domination, but also look at these alternatives uh, and then see how can we actually strengthen that. Um, and I would also really like to hear your reflections on whether you agree that these anti-domination movements are at a disadvantage compared to those uh, movements who do not have a problem to dominate in a way <laughs> because this is exactly about um, forcing others to think like you that it's a much more powerful force than the one that is acknowledging and accepting difference and diversity and a million different ways of being and, and acting um, in terms of you think about, and I, I think that has a lot to do with understandings of power, power over, power with. Um, there's something interesting there. Now, approaches to knowledge, and you didn't talk so much about that, but uh, in the paper, I really uh, wanted to push you a bit on, um, so we are in the field of academic knowledge, uh, but knowledge, of course, is equally based on lived experiences, and it's practice-based. And there's very little understanding and working with that realization, except as something we study as anthropologists. And I really think there needs to be a shift there. So knowledge about violence and oppression, for example, is it's deeply embodied. It's a knowledge that people have that it's quite, like, most of it is subconscious, but it is actually a reflection of, and very often it's actually uh, passed on through generations but it's embodied, so how do we actually get to that kind of uh, knowledge? Um, I think it, yeah, it's, it requires a lot of hard and incredibly painful work to kind of <laughs> become aware, become conscious, but also it requires a lot of different types of research than the kind of research we do at the moment, uh, which is very uh, focused on the verbal. And then acting, um, this acting beyond binaries, I think is interesting. So work on transgressing boundaries, of course, has a lot to gain from queer research, which I, you also mentioned. Um, and then, of course, there's these counter reactions and counter movements. Um, 
Yesterday at the conference, someone was pointing out that uh, we had a conference on humanitarianism, which is going on today as well. And someone was pointing out that we haven't seen the same level of authoritarian number of authoritarian states since what was it, 1989 or something like. Um, so the question that follows that is um, this kind of struggle between the transversal and these homogenizing forces. Um, how how do we make sense of that? How do we kind of do, and what I'm very interested in this systematic work on um, integrating polarities or polarity processing, uh, which might be quite crucial there, both in academia, but also in the wider society. Um, and then just very briefly, additional reflections that I think would be useful to bring in. Um, the essential role, because I think a lot of these discussions are also about incredible doom scenarios. So this understanding of planetary urgency, also yesterday on this kind of humanitarian needs being greater than ever, we need to, um, to me, the, the role of hope, of envisioning, of prefiguration is really crucial there. So it's also really about the stories we're able to tell us in order to find that the action we engage in is still meaningful. Um, so that, I think, needs to be there. And then also making more use or, or kind of not um, really doing more with indigenous, queer perspectives, not as studying as movements, but actually integrating it in the theoretical conceptual work. I think there's a lot that could be done there. Ethics of care. Uh, you mentioned care uh, a little bit, but this kind of um, feminist perspective that really draws on this understanding of interrelation, the fact that we're all interdependent. Um, so there, I think there's a lot of interesting work that, that happens. And then to me, the final question was also whether you wish to talk about planetary citizenship, citizens, or movements, and what the different concepts allow us to think or how it requires us to relearn or unlearn. So I'll leave it at that so that we have at least 10 minutes for discussion. <laughs> Thanks. We have a we have a roving mic. If anyone would like to like to make a question, yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for a very um, inspiring and um, a presentation that provides a sort of a whole um, scenario of of the planetary citizenship. My my question is, to what extent the existing institutions of planetary nature, like for example the United Nations, indeed has been successful in negotiating a number of conventions like the Climate Convention, Convention Against, um, you know, uh, against Child Labor, or what uh, ILO Convention on Domestic Workers. So these conventions, in a way, <coughs> have a uh, sort of a supranational context in which they are able to provide rights to people of a nation, even though it's of a planetary nature, yeah? And then they can be held accountable. So that has uh, you know, not been sort of, it is, we need to be aware of the existing uh, sort of however weak they are, they have a role to play in, in trying to go towards a global citizenship aspiration. Then of course the whole question of sustainable development which is not really mentioned directly because it links the economic, environmental, social and ethical components of development 
of course, interesting in the concept originally developed by the pr former prime minister of Norway, and you um, know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, one of her books, so uh, reports, I suppose. So I'm saying it in a way try to integrate integrates the different concepts, you know. Uh, so I suppose the what ha what has happened, unfortunately, unfortunately, is that climate movement does not really it became a fragmented movement when people against poverty fighting in poverty are looking at, you see. They're saying, you're not looking at the poverty issues, you're looking at climate issues as the only issue. As you were saying, the, the only issue is about, about humanitarian issues, main issues. So the fragmentation, in a way, unfortunately, does not create an integrated approach to planetary citizenship aspiration, yeah? This is something I think, I think how we could eventually pr promote this uh, towards that. Then again, one last comment is that very often economics have played an important role in, in pushing towards the planetary system, like European Union. Or it was called as European Economic, you know, it was, it was a commission, you know. It was economy, trade was more important, which indeed over time graduated towards a transnational kind of a setup of European Union we have. Similarly, NAFTA in a way to some extent trying to do, that's what African Union wants to do. So for example, the role of economics, where there is enough room for free for of capital and capital and, and, and uh, what shall I say, money or goods, the free flow of human beings is still controlled by nation states, which I think is a major challenge to this planetary citizen aspiration, I think. Thank you. Thanks very much. Maybe we take a couple of questions and we do, we do, uh, we do two or three in, in one round. I think there's a question over here in the corner. <coughs> and if you could just uh, briefly mention who you are at the start. Good morning, thank you very much. Um, for this interesting discussion, uh, I am uh, Wendy Hamelink. I'm working at the Center for Gender Research at the University of Oslo. Uh, and I'm working in a project about alternative citizenship <coughs> of Kurdish women. Um, and I, I was just interested in, or a little bit thinking when I hear you talking about planetary citizenship, that it has a flip side in that it can open up our imagination and our um, ideas for uh, like uh, indigenous movements uh, that have been uh, kind of not much acknowledged, that um, they become more relevant because of, they were always relevant, but uh, we couldn't maybe see it, uh, that they become more relevant because of the tension for uh, the planet and planetary citizenship. And uh, when you say that, um, you know, the, the Greek polity uh, that since then um, th there is a, th this idea about democracy and citizenship. Um, I was thinking of a recently published article by Hanafi Badish about uh, the he who, who is analyzing uh, some indigenous movements in Mexico uh, and comparing it to, to the um, like direct democracy movement in uh, northern Syria, Rojava, and saying that we should like uh, turn around this like we should open our mind for the fact that uh, ideas about democracy, citizenship and direct democracy have been available since a very long time in indigenous movements. And I find it kind of interesting that this, planetary, this idea of planetary citizenship opens up our mind for this kind of thing. So it has kind of a flip side of also empowering and strengthening these movements in importance and in yeah listening to them is just a comment but thank you very much
Thank you. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you very much. So two, two quite substantive questions there. So maybe we'll, we'll, we'll take those two first of all. And so the initial question on, on the international system and the extent to which it has been able to capture uh, these realities uh, or not, um, and it's perhaps predominantly economics-driven agenda. Uh, and then also I think it's very interesting, this, this perhaps would add, you know, there are alternative forms of political process, coming to a little bit to your discussion, David, uh, which don't necessarily sit within a, a, a sovereign territorial husk. Um, perhaps there are indeed traditions, not just that we can draw on an academic scholarship, but which could become relevant within this kind of planetary imagine that you're, that you're describing. So Engin, if you wanted to perhaps respond first, and then David or Cindy, if you wanted to, to come in, then feel very free. Yeah, thanks very much. Really good uh, questions. On the question of the uh, existing institutions at supranational level, UN and its conventions, uh, what role they may uh, play. Um, I haven't uh, made it clear in, in my talk, but uh, when I mention social instituted imaginary, I also consider formal and semi-formal institutions being part of that uh, process. Um, so the, the role of UN and its transformation since 1945, and particularly a series of conventions like the ch uh, children uh, you mentioned, but also indigenous peoples, um, the rights of um, LGBTQ, those have been uh, significant expansion of the repertoire of what supranational institutions can do. Uh, so these are dynamically changing institutions. So that's why I wanted to maintain a broader concept, social institute imaginary, and then see what and to what, uh, what and how um, existing institutions fit into it, but also contribute to it. So your uh, question is uh, significant in highlighting that and and thank you for that a um a related one you said also the economic economic the role of economic like the eu its trade relations i think um again one could twist eu citizenship to interpret as a step in planetary citizenship within the european union there's a very strong movement saying um EU citizenship is only a beginning. We are actually we are actually in a lab experimenting with how abolishing borders might look like. But we are not just simply about the EU. We are interested in expanding this. Of course, there are imperialist fears in there, as well as um, Westernist and Eurocentric uh, views. But nonetheless, considering it as a lab, for how we might deal with trade, how we might deal with exchange, how we might deal with uh, open borders and the free movement of labor, it is the most one of the most significant citizenship experiments in the world. Um, again, I'm grateful for you to highlight that that is part of the institution of this imaginary. Uh, on the question of um, Hanafi Barish's work on on um, on the Rojava, uh, Rojava region and and the and the Kurdish indigenous uh, knowledges, I'm aware of it. I was his external PhD examiner and a, a brilliant work and and anthropologically and ethnographically he really draws out and makes these connections between uh, anarchist and municipal socialist. Um, um, 
tradition of Murray Bookchin and uh, Abdullah Öcalan and sees how the development of that work. Um, there's fantastic stuff in there in terms of thinking. And then I have seen him perform also his um, sort of recovery of these um, knowledges, democratic citizenship practices in the presence of various other indigenous groups, um, Zapatistas and, and other. And that's really, for me, as an inspiring scene to how aware they were in the way in which they relate on their practices and the languages they use. And we are talking about literally two corners of the world, uh, uh, in Mexico, indigenous people, and in, in Kurdistan, that doesn't exist. That was inspiring. So thanks for reminding that that there are practices. Um, I will stop there. Well, thanks, Engin, for a very rich and very kind of uh, the talk, which gives a lot of new perspectives, because you kind of sum up your own work on citizenship and add the planetary aspect to it. So I, I just want to, 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 to challenge you with this as, as I hear you, you talk about uh, this uh, kind of uh, the, the planetary citizenship uh, is on another level, another scale. It, it, it's not the same as the as the social movement. It is it's it's similar but still different. And you had one one very strong sentence saying that the, the in the planetary citizenship. No, no. You, the, the strong sentence was really where are the sources. Where are the ethical sources for citizenship? And then you stated that in the new planetary citizenship, the source is the Earth, period. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strong sentence. So, so um, but some of the questions around afterwards has also, have also been kind of questioning, is it really a, a, a difference of ontology? That, that the Earth is the source, is one separate thing, and the other sources are different. Uh, when you talk about in indigenous people and indigenous movements, and some of the other questions, they are all very strong into the interdependencies, interrelationships, etc., etc. So I, I would like you to, to elaborate a little more if, if this kind of strong distinction between the source, uh, the Earth is the source on the one hand, which is an absolutely different source, and the other sources. I would, I would hesitate to draw that strong line between the, the previous sources and, and the Earth source, because it all goes, it all goes into some kind of interdependency. So the question is, is, this, is the Earth a different source? Which then demands other things, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that that would be the philosophical question for me. Thank you. This is kind of scary. Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm Christina. I'm a master student, actually, of three ref of um, Kaya, um, and maybe it's a little bit on the side, but I I think it's good for a discussion either way. Uh, since I have a background both as a geologist and a religion uh, bachelor and now master's, and I was thinking, um, 
uh, yeah, that we recognize these problems on Earth and climate and everything, and uh, as you mentioned, and we have seen that both scientists and activists have been screaming and fighting and telling politicians that we need to do something now. And there has been a lot of meetings like uh, the climate meetings and the UN meetings and so on. But what could we as an academic society and academics wear? Uh, do as an act or, or do acts of maybe uh, different kinds of citizenship to actually make things happen before it is too late I, and if this planetary citizenship maybe can be a solution to it or in any way yeah i i hope it gives a little bit sense hi uh yeah this is scary for me too um i i have many uh identities i am a stay-at-home mom uh, i studied law and chinese the language um uh, and now I'm lucky to do pro bono work every Sunday for Maya Groff, uh, an international lawyer. And in terms of what Cindy said about this envisioning, uh, this is like the most um, fun um, uh, part-time job I could have <laughs> because she is the convener of the Global Governance Commission. Uh, and they are putting forth, uh, so the commissioners are experts from all over the world and uh, from different backgrounds. Uh, they are climate scientists or previous um, uh, state leaders, um, like uh, Mary Robinson, um, and they are. And there will probably be a, a Netflix uh, documentary eventually. Um, but they are putting forth, um, doing lots of research and just drawing it all together, putting it in, in a report uh, to um, share it uh, during uh, the New York Climate Week. Uh, in September and also for the next um, uh, climate, uh, the UN, uh, whatever they call it, COP something. <laughs> yes. Um, and the solutions are, are really drawing on this because I think personally we need to unite uh, these, uh, these global issues are, uh, you know, they don't know any borders. And until we have this unity, this basic unity of all of humanity, we cannot solve these problems. And we are, we are still going into United Nations meetings with like protecting our own national interests. Um, so some of these uh, solutions that are being put forth are really at this like global governance level. And also I'm trying to raise kids who are, you know, really view themselves as uh, global citizens. So this is, you know, it um, seeps into like every aspect of, of our lives and, and uh, from the individual to the institutional to the societal level. Uh, and it's just really, really exciting. So if you come across this uh, Global Governance Commission and the reports and their ideas that are, you know, all these brilliant minds are trying to put together and they all agree that we need this like global governance level, maybe um, some viable, options even for upgrading the United Nations system because if you draw on on just regular functional uh, organizations um, they need to have you know certain elements in place which are just obviously lacking in the United Nations so they're very viable options that are not necessarily um, you know you can uh, dismiss it as utopian but if you look at like uh, one of the books she has written with some co-authored with uh, two other experts. 
um, it's really, really exciting to look at this and visioning of what kind of world, not looking from bottom up like we often do as a national citizens. Um, and then nationalism kind of becomes this obstacle. But if you look top down, if you uh, like the astronauts, you get this overview effect. You look at the globe as one, uh, our common habitats, and then you will find, you know, there are solutions and we can solve these problems together. So that's very hopeful. Um, yeah, I appreciate Cindy's perspectives on hopefulness and interconnectedness. And yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. And it does indeed pick up on it, which I, which I thought was very important that you mentioned, Cindy, which is this, 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 the, the tone of the, of the arguments is, is also important. Um, are they hopeful? Are they dismissive? Are they somehow reluctant or, 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 or exhausted? I think, I think this, this, this component of, of creating uh, a new planetary um, consciousness is very, is very important, actually. Engin, would you like to pick up on again, uh, Cindy and David, if you wanted to come in, feel, feel very free. Thank you. Thanks for all uh, questions. They're fantastic. Um, um, I've taken copious notes. These make me really think through as I speak in different occasions. So really grateful for that. Um, I'm opening with this because I also feel inadequate to respond to uh, with the depth that they require. So I, I keep thinking about them. Uh, your question is tough. Uh, the Earth as the source of authority. Um, okay, let's revise my t uh, my um, sentence. Um, let's say the Earth as our common habitat as the authority. Um, you were saying globe as our common habitat. I think the the change of perspective is that there is almost no other uh, imaginary is able to call upon not only human species, but all species and beings of the Earth as one. Um, even in anti-racist struggles, for example, you know, race should not exist. We should all treat each other equal has a restrictive call. It is about human species. Um, but what about our relationship of domination with, with animals? It doesn't include that. And now the planetary actually makes them cross. So I've seen, for example, in demonstrations and so on, planetary activists making connections between anti-patriarchy um, struggles, anti-domination struggles with respect to race, an oil spill and climate crisis, and saying, I've got pictures uh, of slogans saying, these are all the same struggle. And I think planetary is enabling that um, crossing. In a way, the Earth as the source of our common habitat, and that's the authority of it that it calls upon. It is forcing us to speak also beyond our species, our interspecies duties. Uh, that is a unique call. Uh, and I think I'm trying to tease that out. Um, my sentence does sound too strong. Um, 
and the d interdependencies and so on, planetary teases that, that out, interdependencies that we haven't really thought through as significantly. Um, and the question about what could academics do as planetary citizenship, I, th I think rebellion scientists are, are an example of it. Um, but also there are many other things. I see this in my, in my early career colleagues, uh, in my PhD students, and I also um, learn from them that compared with my generation, their relationship to the kind of work they do is very different, and that is really positive. That's the optimistic aspect of it. So I have a PhD student who uh, did work on um, crossings between um, Franco-Italian uh, Franco, uh, border, who lived there uh, for a year, became an activist herself, uh, gave an account of her experience, and then joined with climate activists, uh, solidarity activists, migrant activists, and so on, and, and gives such a strong sense of uh, the, the, the site and the field, so much so that actually she lost her interest in finishing the PhD. <laughs> so that was a challenge for me. Um, we got through that. She did, she did finish it, but it was a good development like for her to say, okay, I am in it, and I I'm losing my interest in describing it. So I had to convince that description is good too. You need to describe that. You need to describe for others to know. And she made really good, good um, uh, use of that. And I see this in, in my other um, younger colleagues as well. Their lives are much more entwined with uh, um, activities. You know, I have a few colleagues who are uh, building a rescue ship uh, with th for the Mediterranean. S spending enormous amount of money, not only uh, uh, money, time, um, trying to raise funds, but also uh, thinking about what does it mean to imagine uh, the Mediterranean as common habitat for all species, people, for free movement of people. So it's rethinking the Mediterranean, and, and, and that is really important. So a lot's happening in terms of these intersections. Um, they burst into scene. So this a bit coming into um, your question about uh, we need to unite global uh, issues. We need to be able to, we cannot solve them without unity. Uh, you said, I agree, that's really significant. There are moments of coherence, consistency, and unity are important to put a, a particular front, particular political agenda and tactic. But um, in the written piece, and that one thought that I'm developing is that planetary movements are also incredibly, what I find, along with this being non-binary, um, flexible. So they work with various intensities. What I find in planetary movements is that it actually lives, the imaginary lives in people's bodies and actions and, and ways of thinking about the world. But when something does not call them on to act, they are okay with that. So I, I say this lower intensity stage of a movement. And then something happens. You see how quickly they are organized, how quickly they are mobilized. Then you realize that this was already a movement in, in, in uh, hibernation. And then it, it moves into action, and I call this 
high-intensity stage of a movement. All of a sudden, in a, in a different intensity, it really pushes on a particular uh, issue and then goes into low-intensity hibernation. And it goes ebbs and flows that way. This is to say that there is no reason for pessimism if it appears that, in fact, various movements are not active any given moment. There are enough indications of it being active in a different way, in low intensity. And then the question is, could keep working, keep working, not stopping. So, for example, the ship uh, project I mentioned, it's been going on for five years. Hardly anybody knows about it. We're still collecting, I became part of it. We're still collecting money. We're going to do that Mediterranean thing, but we're doing it low intensity, 10 euros at a time. And everybody is responsible for bringing 10 people into it. It's growing. Um, SOS Mediterranean is, is behind it. But the ship is beyond that. It's also going to become a fleet. And it's going to sail outside the Mediterranean at one point. So that's one like call on the burner, as it were. And, and going also back to your um, uh, question is that I see many activists operating in multiple registers and becoming parts of multiple movements. So singularity is not a mode of being for many of the activists. Plurality or multiplicity. And of course, there are contradictions and there are conflicts among them, which uh, David raised. And I want to come back to how that's also incorporated. So. Uh, I'm pleased you, you introduced that element of pluralism because I think one of the big questions that we confront here is there is pluralism. There have to be different agendas and intensities as you, as you refer to them. So what then do become the common elements that bind? And I think here, figuring out better what a language of obligation needs to be in this context provides some element of the compass that's required for these different agendas moving in different times different temporalities to do. And I do think we've had a couple of questions about the, the, the system. And I do think there are signs, as you point out, that, these, that this language is beginning to be taken up. So the UN Secretary General's Our Common Agenda, for example, has a section in it on duties to future generations. That is a step. It's not quite the river yet, but is a step in the direction of elaborating and expanding on the realm of things that we can bring into the politics of what of what these changes need to need to involve. Um, we have time for just one last round of questions, and then David, if you want to come in on the on the back of that, uh, and I'll leave the last word to you, Engin. Um, uh, thank you so much for the presentation and the nice comments. I think it was super insightful. Um, I wanted to challenge a little bit the globality of the planetary citizenship concept. And I was sort of thinking, especially in your third dimension on how people act, uh, I was thinking that there is a certain or certain kind of people that are vegetarian, that go to climate marches, that buy sustainable clothing, and there's uh, a lot of privilege that comes with that. I think they are mostly uh, sort of uh, quite wealthy, maybe from the global north, uh, maybe urban instead of rural. So I was wondering, like, who, who are those people? people really that enact this uh, global uh, planetary citizenship? And what does this do to the imaginaries we have of it? So if only a few people 
under very privileged circumstances imagine what global citizenship really is, then how limited can this concept be or sort of what are the effects uh, on this? And uh, then sort of as a third add-on to this, who benefits from this concept? Uh, so is it those people that imagine it and that make it into a reality? Or is it also those that are sort of not part of it or, or left out of the uh, concept? Uh, thank you. Hello, my name is Tuna Sommerfeld and I'm a researcher here at PRIO and an anthropologist. Um, I'm not so familiar with the literature on, on and, and debates and even projects here on citizenship, but I'm frantic, frantically sort of um, looking through my mind in uh, sort of parallels to the cosmopolitanism debates that you also have been discussing. And I mean, in appeals to cosmopolitanism, these um, there are appeals to transgression of difference. Uh, and uh, they can be economic, they can be political and so on. But there is one very central theme there, which is sort of to not transgress the integrity of the host in host-guest relationships and what you do with a planetary uh, cosmopolitanism project in a way or, or concept of citizenship is is to establish the earth as the host in a way and um, what activists argue is that that integrity of the host has been transgressed in a way but but I mean the fact the fact that the humans are now relegated to the guest role uh, it leaves quite an enormous space for interpretation because the earth doesn't speak clearly and that was the knowledge element and the science element that you mentioned so i'm wondering what does this what does this sort of intangibility of the message from the host <laughs> the new host what does it do um, to uh, to social movements and also the landscape of movements in a way and then secondly very very briefly i mean uh, the difference to gen, I mean, this is not a rights-based discourse. It's not, it, it differs from gender, gender discourses, queer rights and so on, because they are rights-based discourses. This is an obligation and a duty-based discourse. So um, uh, it also reconfigures rights in a way and notions of rights. So just a few thoughts on that, thanks. Thank you, uh, very inspiring and thought-provoking. Uh, I'll try to be brief. Uh, it kind of follows up on what, what you both mentioned. Uh, and it's a question on what types of normativity are created or established with uh, various ways of planetary engagements, uh, which we might, you know, interpret within the planetary citizenship movement. Um, uh, also, are they reserved for a privileged part who, uh, if we remain uncritical towards these normativities, uh, then they may be misused as we see in both the Norwegian media discourse and European on, for example, Roma migrant beggars uh, and how we use dehumanizing articulations or animal type connotations. Uh, so on the positive side, how can we reinterpret through this imaginary of planetary citizenship um, these animal descriptions of human beings if we actually view interconnectivity at the core um, and animal rights as elevated. So how may that be a positive challenge to the lived experiences of being dehumanized and racialized uh, as beggar? Mm -hmm. 
Very interesting. Engel, I'm going to ask you to hold your responses to that for one second. David, if you want to just say a last round of comments, I know you wanted to come in a second ago, and then Cindy, perhaps if you just wanted to make a last round of comments, and then we'll leave it to you, Engin, to, uh, to, to respond to those last questions and then, and then to wrap up. David. Yeah, there's so much to pick up on, and I can't uh, take all of it. But I wanted to say something about the more than human uh, aspect that uh, many of you have uh, mentioned, which I think I'm, I always find it challenging to think about the more than human, uh, uh, also because uh, citizenship is so often thought of as as a subject that can uh, speak clearly. I think it was this un unclear message that was. Uh, that was said, um, and but also this other risk that I think is in the more than human, and that is for the need to be so inclusive on part of the more than human, there is also a risk of what Jason Moore would call anthropocentric flattening, that we treat humans as uh, something very uniform. Uh, particularly, I think, when we talk about these global institutions, the, the climate struggle, that there's a we. There's a we that have caused the problem, there's a we that solves or needs to solve the problem. There's a sacrifice that is required from us. Uh, and I think that it's easy for us in this urban privileged bubble to, to, th to not really think through how that plays out with different groups, how exclusionary it can feel. So that's the one thing. And the other is, is uh, also when you connect up to, say, indigenous knowledge, uh, the, 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 there is possibly also an anthropocentric flattening in, in how we engage with different others, that we are very interested in, in how indigenous knowledge can teach us something about interconnectedness, for instance. But, uh, but when it comes to, say, meat-eating cultures or also the very strong hierarchical uh, ideas that might be established in, in certain indigenous uh, groups, that's something we kind of s s disengage with, for instance. And how is that felt by these groups that are being included, but on certain terms? Uh, so, so I think that's something to think about. And I also think uh, this comment about the UN is uh, it's a very strong storyteller about this we. Uh, some feel included or inspired by this we, but others feel, I think, disenfranchised by being included on terms that they cannot control or have little say or influence over. Very good. Thanks, David. Cindy. I want to repeat a comment I made yesterday. You talked about envisioning, um, and I want to bring in prefiguration, which is an incredibly, yeah, not very intuitive word, uh, but prefiguration as uh, living your life as if the future that you want to, or that you envision that you want to be there is already here. So that kind of connects envisioning to acting in the here and now. It comes originally from uh, more uh, anarchist movements and really the radical left. Uh, but I think to me this is really uh, crucial because these movements are really about acknowledging that we cannot move towards something we want to see if we don't actually act. So if we don't kind of, if we start replicating the domination that we try to fight in our everyday life and structures, uh, we're never going to get there. So I just wanted to add that to the discussion. Thank you, Cindy. Since this is a conversation that is only growing, but uh, Engen, if you are able to put an artificial 
stop on it just for just for now to sum up and of course we'll be able to have some coffee and so forth uh, afterwards but uh, Engen some last words from you thanks so much for all the questions and your thoughts and comments uh, David and Cindy to start with also Simon and and those of you who asked questions and reflected on I really really uh, um, am grateful for the seriousness with which you have taken up them and also uh, the material you provided me to to think with. I am just merely restricting now my comments to thanking you because if I start, I won't stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't stop thinking about them and thanks so much. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Engin. Thank you also from myself and from Prio, from the Co-Duties team, uh, to all of you for coming for the fantastic questions and discussion. Really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Uh, and Engin, especially to you for your, your wonderful provocation and to Cindy and David for joining us. So thank you, all of you, for, for coming along. <laughs>